following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. It's, um, it's a strange phenomenon, but people in the path of killer storms, hurricanes, tornadoes, this kind of thing, people in the path of killer storms very often don't heed the warnings and will remain in the path of the storm, refusing to leave. Very often, people who need saving don't realize the peril that they're actually in. Studies have shown, I read a couple of studies on on this, people who actually just stay put, believing they can ride out the storm, uh, they kind of fall into four categories. Let me give you these. Uh, They are desensitized to the warnings. They're the people who say, oh, they warn us all the time. It's just the weather network trying to sell advertising. I'm not going to believe it. Snowmageddon, they say, but it's not really going to be that bad. They're desensitized to the message. Or they're delusional. When I see the tornado, then I'll go to the shelter. When the storm starts coming right at my house, then I'll, I'll go. Or they're distracted. Life is so busy. I, I, uh, sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Uh, what storm? Was there a storm? They're just distracted. Or they're in denial. Well, the storm isn't actually, I believe there is a storm. I know the warning is legit, but I don't believe it's actually going to hit here. Or I don't believe it's going to be as bad as what they say. Have you heard some of this before? Does it all sound fairly familiar? You see, well, what is true of storms is much more true of the peril that we are in spiritually. With respect to our need to be saved from our sins. There's so many warnings about getting right with God that we might hear. But let's kind of look around and see that most people in society today are not in a place of worship hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most of them have heard repeated warnings and the vast majority of people in this city and in this county today and indeed around the world are choosing to not heed the warnings and to ride out the storm. Let's borrow the same words. These people don't think they need saving. You see, because they're desensitized. Well, I hear the warnings all the time. You know, I hear the preachers. People tell me this. I have family members. I know there's churches. I know what they're preaching. I've heard about God. I know some Christians at work. I know what they would say. But they're desensitized to it. It's just white noise in their life. Or they're delusional. My life is pretty good. So yeah, when I see the end, I'll turn to God. Have you heard that one before? Just before I die, I'll make the decision. I'll get a chance to be saved just before the end. Or they're distracted. Sorry, I, I wasn't paying attention. I'm too busy with my life. I've got a lot going on. What, what's this thing about God, about Jesus? Huh? What? distracted or they're just flat out in denial none of this is really going to happen 
I mean, if there is a God, he won't actually condemn people to hell. There won't be eternal separation from him. Everybody's going to get in in the end. It's all going to be okay. These, none of these is a great plan. I hope we understand that. It's such a bad idea if you're sitting here today and you don't have the relationship with Christ. It's such a bad idea to think you can ride out the storm of judgment that's coming. Jesus Christ is coming and our greatest need, the single greatest need that we have as human beings is to be ready for his arrival. Flat out, that's it. Of all the other things that we could preoccupy ourselves with in this life, it is that we would be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 71 of the passage we're going to read in just a moment says very simply this, God's desire is that we should be saved. That we should be saved. Now by using the word saved, it implies that we are in danger and need saving. Does that make sense? He wouldn't use that word, Zechariah here. He wouldn't use that word unless there was a need for us to be saved. Now, I get that many people don't believe it. I get that there might even be people here this morning, despite the fact that you have made your way on snowy roads on a cold morning to be here for worship, there may in fact be people here today who do not yet believe this message. You're desensitized. You're delusional about these things. You're distracted by your life. You're in denial about what all of this means. And no matter where you're at, with your attitudes and what you believe, I'm here to tell you, you need to be saved. Your life is in peril. There is a storm of judgment coming and you can't save yourself. And your enemy has a grip on you. And you would do well today to... To hear the word of God, to hear what I am going to attempt to tell you, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ from the words of Zechariah in Luke's gospel. So let's look at that right now together. This is Luke uh, chapter 1. We have been working through Luke's gospel and seven messages in now. We're going to finish the first chapter. And uh, this is Luke chapter 1 verses 67 through to 80, the end of the chapter. And this is uh, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. Uh, His mouth has just recently been opened. And he speaks this. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Word of God. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, um, we know um, that the message is everything and the messenger is nothing. God, I pray that you would show us your power right now, the power of the good news of Jesus Christ, the power of this message. I would pray boldly that those in the room or those who would be watching or listening to this message, Father, those who have not yet believed, not yet followed you, God, that today they would be saved in the hearing of this word. Forgive sins, chase the darkness away, give life where there has only been death. God, I pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you agree with that prayer, just say amen. Amen. All right. Well, Zechariah's had nine months of being deaf and mute because of unbelief. And in that period of time, we learned already uh, that God had been working in his life. And the first words that came out of his mouth were words of worship and praise and honor to God at the naming of his son. And so he's had nine months. What we read right here, this, this, this lyric, this poem, this song uh, that he's written and, 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 and is about to say to uh, the people who've gathered for John's naming ceremony. He's had a long time to think about this. He's had nine months of being unable to hear and unable to speak to craft in his mind exactly what he's going to say in this moment when he's able to finally speak again. And he knew that his son was going to be a prophet. He knew that his son was going to blaze the trail for the Messiah to come. And he knew that he would have friends and family members at that special ceremony for his son. He knew he was going to have a captive audience. And he knew that he was going to be able to proclaim very clearly what his son's message and ministry were going to be all about. It's just a little bit like Like dad wanted to have the first word about the coming of Messiah before his son grew up and became the preacher that he knew he was going to become. And so it's such a powerful moment. He's got these friends and family members there and he wants to tell them the basic message that they, that we should be saved. That's what God's communicating. That's God's whole plan and mission. God would desire it here in this room today. I've prayed in earnest coming into this Sunday that that God would save those in the room who are not yet saved. I don't know what brought you here. I don't know how you got here this morning, but I'm praying you're here because God's Holy Spirit wanted you here and wanted you to hear this message and that this morning you would respond to it, that you should be saved by a God who loves you. By a God who loves you. Take a look at it here. He's he's a God who loves us and who keeps his promises. 
Once again, verse 67, we saw his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Elizabeth had been filled with the Holy Spirit just a little bit back in the chapter, and she too had prophesied. And so uh, Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit. He's prophesying. Don't be uh, too set back by that word. It literally means to proclaim or to preach. Two different kinds of prophecy. We've talked about this already, but good for review. There's the kind of prophecy that we often think about, which is a foretelling of future events. He spoke a prophetic word. It's something he couldn't otherwise have known. It's about something that's still to come in the future. In that sense, uh, there's some prophecy going on. But prophecy is also very simply preaching or proclamation of truth, established known truths. You just need to hear this thing again. This is something God wants you to hear and God wants you to obey right now. It's nothing to do with the future. It has everything to do with right now obedience to him. So prophecy can be both of those things. Sometimes it's one and sometimes it's the other. But here in Zechariah's song, we we actually have a merging of the two things where there's both a foretelling of uh, truth and a, a foretelling of truth and a foretelling of future events. Both of those things happening here. All about his newborn son, the prophet to be John, the yet to be born Messiah Jesus. And Zechariah begins his song by simply giving praise and glory to God again. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. It's a benediction or a blessing or a beatitude that he prays over the others. And what's interesting about this song is it's, it's, it is a proclamation. It's, it's being spoken to us, not directly to God. And so he tells us something about the Lord. He is to be blessed and lifted high. Notice why. He has visited us. He has visited us. I, I, I love this, this theme of God coming back for us. You see this so often in Hollywood movies and we think it's so creative and so touching whenever we see it. The hero of the movie, or the hero of the story has been separated from the one who's been in peril and, and the hero comes back. The hero makes his entrance. He comes and he saves the attractive young girl. He saves the small child. And they look up into his eyes and they say, You came back for me. You came back for me. Or how about in history? One of the greatest single lines spoken by a general in the Second World War as the American forces are being pushed out of the Philippines, General, General Douglas MacArthur is on the beach, loading into a ship, taking a, being taken away from the Filipino people. And he says, I will, help me, return. I will return. And he did. Triumphantly to liberate those islands during the war. This concept of returning, we hear it, but let's understand, it wasn't original to General Douglas MacArthur. It wasn't original and is never original. Hollywood has no new ideas. There is nothing original coming out of Hollywood. Every theme, everything about the human condition, every cool, every twisted and weird sort of thing already all happened in the Bible. God's coming back for us. We're going to be able to look up into the sky as he comes or when he saves us and just say, you came for me. You're the hero. I was lost and alone and in peril. And you came for me. That's the God we serve. 
That's how awesome He is. He has visited us. Notice, to redeem His people. He came to redeem us. This isn't like redeeming coupons. We've kind of cheapened this word a little bit. He, He redeemed us. This is slave terminology. In the context of the first century, they would be understanding this in terms of, I was not my own. I was owned by someone else. And in fact, I was enslaved by that person. It wasn't a great situation. And, and Jesus Christ came to redeem me. In other words, to pay the price. Very simply, to pay the price for my freedom. That's redemption. We are set free By his generosity, his goodness, his love, we're delivered from our plight. And he does so in strength and power. Notice uh, number uh, verse 69 now. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. This isn't a horn like one of these horns. This is a horn like, uh, you ever see two um, rams and and them going at each other and and button heads? You've seen that before? And, And... do you not, when you see two... Have anybody seen this before? Are you with me this morning? Hello. I'm Todd. Nice to see you today. So, so two rams coming together. Does that not... When you see that, does that not hurt your head? Do you feel a little pain right here when, when you watch something like that? Because I do. I just feel that. I go, how do they do... They both just walk away and shake hooves and think it's, everything's good. And, but that's what we're talking about here is the horn of salvation. It's that, that horn on the top of a wild ox or a ram of some kind or a bull and how they, that, that, that horn is applied in, in a fatal blow kind of way. Jesus comes to us. It's the horn of salvation. It's a symbol here um, of strength and of power. And that's how he's coming to us. And so his rescue, his redemption, it's legit. It's effective. He's come for us, but he hasn't come to be defeated by the enemies that have enslaved us. He's come to triumph over them. He's come in strength and power that's going to overcome any enemy. And we will find freedom in him. He's paying the price for us, a price we couldn't pay for ourselves. And all of this, uh, the fulfillment of promises... He's raised up a horn of salvation for us, verse 69, in the house of his servant David. Notice, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, I told you I was coming. I made promises all the way back to the beginning. I made promises when sin first entered in the world. I made a promise. And I'm coming in strength and power. I'm coming back for you to redeem you, to set you free. All of this because I love you. His love compelling him to act. His love compelling him to keep the promises that he had made to us. I mean, that's enough of a message right there, isn't it? That's enough to just sit back and go, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I worship you for who you are. That's awesome what you did for us. But there's so much more that we need to hear because his salvation really comes to us to save us from an enemy who hates us. Well, who's the enemy who hates us? Zechariah says that God has visited his people. He's on mission to bring us back into relationship with himself. Verse 71, take a look at it here. This is the key line for the message that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So when you're studying the Bible, you ought to be be looking at a verse like that and you ought to be going, who's the enemy? Who exactly 
are my enemies? Who, who is it that hates me in this way? Zechariah writing in the context he had written and, and reading what he writes here, you get at least a little bit of a sense that he's thinking about the very immediate context of his life. The Jewish people were living in a country that was not independent. They did not have self-determination. They were under the yoke of Roman rule. It had been that way for much of their history where they were not independent and not on their own. For sure, Zechariah has to be thinking at least in part about freedom from Rome. We need to get liberated from Rome. But there's every indication in the song that he was still thinking well beyond that. Whether he fully understood that, but the fact that the Holy Spirit was inspiring him, he said the words that showed us that this goes well beyond this temporal liberation. I mean, Rome is nothing today. By the 4th century AD, Rome was already fading into nothingness. We've been uh, centuries and centuries past the Roman Empire. It's a big zero today. God's liberation goes well beyond any temporal freedom that we might gain. And Zechariah is kind of pushing us in this direction to understand exactly who our enemy is. And knowing who your enemy is is so critical. I hope we understand that we can't really fully get into a relationship with God unless we really identify who's opposing us. What's, what's our real problem? Who is it that really hates us? I mean, no general goes into battle without carefully studying his enemy, knowing his tactics and devising both defensive and offensive strategies that are going to defeat the enemy. Whether you like sports or not, you have to know that coaches and players will spend hours and hours and hours watching game tapes of their opponents to figure out how they can strategize around the defense and score more than they score. In politics, candidates learn the policies of their opponents. They strategize around that in order to defeat them in the election. In business... Corporations and CEOs have research and development departments and they have even corporate espionage to find out what's going on in the other company so they can figure out how to get a bigger market share. Everyone who's anyone who makes any progress in life finds out about their enemy in order to defeat them, to prevail over them. If you want to receive the benefits of the promises of God and the life that he offers, then you will study and know who your enemy is. And you will embrace the means by which you can find freedom. The means by which you can finally defeat your enemy. And so who is it? You say, well, I get all of that. That's great, Todd. Thank you for the little lesson on knowing my enemy. Who exactly is my enemy? And I think the early answers would be Satan. Yes, Satan. You're being very cautious about answering because you know I'm setting you up right now. You know me. We could talk about Satan. We could talk about the world system. Though this world we live in is so bent on evil and destruction that, that it must be the world. And the reality is it's not even so much Satan or his horde of demons. It's not even really so much the world. You see, Satan and his demons are merely the purveyors of sin. The world system is simply the petri dish in which sin flourishes and grows. But Satan's not the real problem. His demons are not the real problem. The world is not the real problem. The real problem, the real enemy, is our own sin. It's what's inside of us. 
It's human depravity. That's the real enemy that keeps us from God. Our, our relationship with our God is severed as a result of our sin. All are guilty. All are condemned. All are in need of a solution. And God gives us a solution here through Zechariah that you should be saved from an enemy that hates you, from an enemy that's bent on your destruction, from an enemy who's intent on serving you up for death and eternal separation from God, an enemy that's intent on keeping you in darkness. That's your sin. And we're going to come back to all of that in a moment, but God's desire is that you should be saved to a life that fulfills you. We've identified our enemy. We probably understand, I hope you understand firsthand his tactics. But God desires that you would have a life that is fulfilling. We're all looking for purpose, are we not? We all want to know why we're here. We're all looking for identity in life. We want to know who we are. We all want to have a sense of belonging, that, that I'm in a family, that I, that I know that I'm loved and I'm part of something. We're all looking for all of these things. Where do I fit in? Who am I? What's my purpose in life? And we struggle so much trying to figure out what all of these things are for us. We'll check out verses 72 and 73 here. Because it... It comes to this point where Zechariah tells us exactly what our purpose is, exactly what God intends for us, and how we can live a fulfilled life. That we should be saved, he says in verse 71, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This is speaking about the Lord. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, notice this, might serve him without fear. It really comes down to that. And I realize that a lot of people like to complicate this more than it needs to be complicated. It really is so simple. God simply wants you in a relationship with him so you can serve him. God wants you to be perfectly fulfilled in your relationship with him. Nothing else in life makes sense. Nothing else in life makes sense will fulfill us, like simply coming into a relationship with him. We may have other things in our life. You say, Todd, well, I think there are some things in my life that I find some some fulfillment in. I have a really great job. I love my job. I'm in a great marriage, and I find fulfillment in that marriage. We've had some great kids, and I I, I love my family, and and there is fulfillment. That's a place of refuge uh, for me. I, I love what's going on in my family. I have good friends, I have some money in the bank, I have a stable life, I'm a fairly content person, I would just look at a bunch of things in my life and just go, I'm content, I'm happy, I'm fulfilled, some things are working for me, it isn't always doom and gloom for everybody, there are some people who have this going on, and I would just say to you, if that's you, you are enjoying temporal fulfillment, you are enjoying something that may last for a season. And that too is a gift from God and you should thank him for it. But there's no guarantees. And by the way, you're not taking any of that with you. Someday your marriage will come to an end by death. 
Someday your children will move away and it won't be the same as it was. It'll be different. Someday you won't have your job anymore. You won't have a place to go. You're, you're going to retire or that job's going to come to an end and you won't have that to fall back on. You see, all of these things are fleeting. They're temporal. We can't rely on them. God may give you those things as a blessing, but ultimately they're not the thing that's going to fulfill us. And God wants to give us this life where we would serve Him without fear of judgment, without fear of the enemy pressing in on us. God wants us to live in holiness, it says here. In holiness toward Him. Pure and undefiled in my relationship with Him. And living righteously with regard to one another in these horizontal relationships that He's given to us. And He wants us to do this all of our days. He wants our life to be free of condemnation, free of anxiety, free of conflict, free of angst. He doesn't want us in this never-ending pursuit of meaning and hope. He wants to end that search for us. And he offers it to us by way of his mercy, his compassion. It's It's a gift that he's simply willing to give us. You are my son. You are my daughter. You're in my family. I love you. Your purpose in life is to serve me, to bring glory to my name. You just need to live for me. Obey my word. Anything else you could pursue in this life, as good as it might seem, is, it's just like nothing compared to that. God wants us to live this fulfilled life. And he's offering us this salvation despite the sins that are destroying us. And we're back to this topic again because we have these sin issues in our lives and before we can get to this life of fulfillment, we have to deal with the enemy. We have to find the solution. Zechariah outlines in verse 76 his son's ministry and you child will be called. He's talking to John. He's just eight days old. And he's speaking this blessing, this prophetic word over his son. And you child, John, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. They had been waiting 400 years. The last prophet to speak in Israel was Malachi. And the last words that Malachi spoke were words of prophecy concerning the next prophet, John the Baptist. That there would be one who would come who would prepare the way of the Lord. And so, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And then Zechariah tells us, this is your ministry... And now here's the message you're going to preach, verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. He's going to tell them the way of salvation, just like I'm telling you today. He's going to tell them how to come into a relationship with God. Notice this, give knowledge of salvation to his people. So critical that we get this line. In the forgiveness of their sins. See, this is how the enemy is defeated. Some of you here have a relationship with God. Many of you here have a relationship with Jesus Christ already. And, and some here probably do not. You're still in your sin and, and the enemy is still prevailing against you. And forgiveness is the one thing we must have from God if we're to have a relationship with him. It's the one thing. If you don't have forgiveness of, a, of sins, then you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I would really hope that in this moment, 
That we could be real honest with ourselves. That we could take a really good look within ourselves to ask the question as to whether or not we truly have this forgiveness from Him. Have we truly dealt with the sins that are in our lives? You see, because at the end of the day, you can't fool yourself. One of those comforting things to me when I, when I pray on Sunday morning before I come here, one of those comforting things to me is that before I articulate any words at all, God already knows everything that's in my heart and mind. And if the words fail me in my journal or in my prayers to him, I can sit there in silence and know he knows it all anyways. And I love that. Because it tells me over and over again, I can't fool myself. You know, and, and, and I might think that I'm fooling the people around me, but you can only do that for so long and the people around you will see you for who you are. Your loved ones, your spouse, your children. People at work, they, they, they really do know you for who you are. You might think you're hiding some stuff, but they, they get it. I mean, we can't fool ourselves. We can't really fool the people around us. And we certainly cannot fool God. Because he does know us better than we even know ourselves. So, so honesty, what are the sin issues that are keeping you from that relationship with Jesus Christ? What's the block What have you failed to confess that's keeping you from really having that relationship with Christ? Again, I'm not talking to those here today who already have this relationship. I'm not talking about sin issues that might be keeping you from having the filling of God's Holy Spirit in your life. There are many people here, and I get it, even when we're followers of Christ, we're still dealing with sin issues. For those of you who are here, and you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, and you're regularly confessing your sin, and you're really seeking to live holy and righteous before Him, and to serve the Lord, I'm not really talking to you today. I'm talking about the person who has, uh, has known sin in their life. They have willful sin. And that sin is keeping them from having a relationship with Jesus Christ. They haven't confessed their sin to God. If that's you, you might be religious. I feel the need to say that. You might be religious. You might be regular in your attendance in worship services. You might be showing some sense of understanding all of this. You might be in relationship with people who know Christ. See, all of those things could be true, and yet you could still stop short of actually having a relationship with Him. That you don't really know God. You say, how can I really know for sure whether or not I have a a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, let me give you some things here. No matter what you think about your relationship with God, let's look at this. You are not a genuine follower of Christ. You are not genuinely forgiven. If any of these things is true of you, I'm going to give you five of them. The first is this. You do not believe that Jesus Christ came to earth, died on the cross, was raised to new life, paying the price for your sins. I mean, if that's true for you, if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that Jesus came, that he actually died, he lived this life, he is God, he became man. If you don't believe all of that, if you don't believe he was raised new life on the third day, And you're not a true follower. You you must believe that. He's the only way uh, whereby we must be saved. 
Secondly, you've had no crisis of faith. We don't stumble into this. It, it doesn't come by osmosis. It isn't inherited from our parents. You have to have had a crisis of faith yourself. It may have happened when you were 4 or 14 or 40. But there has to be a moment in time where you consciously, deliberately chose to follow Christ. I heard the gospel. I understood the gospel. I made a decision to believe the gospel. You have that. I hope you do. Secondly, or thirdly, you have not verbally, thoughtfully confessed that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Expressing your need to be forgiven. That has to actually be believed and said. Not only the part about Jesus and what he did, but the reason he did it is because we're sinners. And unless you're willing to say, I'm falling short of God, well, then you're not saved. Number four, you have not declared Jesus Christ to be both Savior and Lord of your life. Some people are willing to see him as Savior, but not willing to make him Lord. And uh, the two go together. You can't have one without the other. There needs to be a surrender of yourself. That's why I prefer, I almost never use the word Christian. I don't know if you ever noticed that in my preaching. I almost never use the word Christian. Not that I'm opposed to it, and it is found in the Bible. But I just believe it's been uh, so watered down, so neutralized in our culture that I almost always refer to either Christ followers or followers of Christ. Those are the expressions that I'll use over and over again. And the reason for that is, is I want us to be thinking about the fact that we must Follow him in his ways. He's Lord. He calls the shot. He's leading the way. I have no other recourse in this life. I must follow him. Have you declared him to be both Lord and Savior of your life? And then number five, you are not a genuine follower of Jesus Christ if you have not experienced, have not and are not experiencing the new life that the Holy Spirit brings about. If you're not seeing change, in your life, if you're not experiencing that, then you have no reason to believe that you're genuinely following Christ. Now back to the question. What sin is keeping you from having that relationship with Christ? We could make a fine list here of sins. I don't know if I'm going to hit upon yours. Lust, adultery, sexual addiction, cheating, theft, fraud, lying, gossip, slander, cursing. Did I hit your favorite? You didn't want to laugh at that? No. See, those aren't really the issue. These merely point out the need. When I have these things going on in my life, they just point out my need of a Savior. Ultimately, the sin, the one singular sin that keeps us from having a relationship with God is this. Unbelief. We just don't believe. We don't believe we're sinners. We don't believe Jesus Christ is who he said he is. We don't believe he's the only way. We don't believe he died on the cross. We don't believe he was raised to new life. We just don't believe. That's the only thing, the only sin that's keeping you out of heaven is unbelief. And so would you believe today? Would you quit denying your sin and confess it to the one who has been the greatest victim of your sin? Jesus Christ. He alone can save you into the light that will lead you. This is, this is what we want. This is what we're wired up to have is light in our lives. 
Verse 77 uh, ends kind of talking about John the Baptist and his message and his ministry. And verse 78 now shifts our attention to the Messiah himself. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby... Back to this theme of visiting in, in just what I think is one of the coolest metaphors, descriptions, names for our Lord. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us. Who's the sunrise? Say his name. It's Jesus Christ. I, I, I read that this week and I've read Luke's gospel so many times. I've read through my ESV Bible several times and, and I never picked up on this. You know how that happens? And you're reading something and then you read it again and you go, wow, like I didn't read that before and yet I did. And I'd never really noticed that Jesus Christ is described as the sunrise. And if you go back, how many people New King James or King James Version in your hand right now? A few of you are still carrying that version and, and you love that and so rich in its language. And, and in your versions, it says the day spring. And that sounded more familiar to me. That Jesus was the, the, is the day spring or the sunrise coming to us. It literally means the dawning. He's the dawn. He's the sunrise. He, Jesus Christ, is the new day. And this is a sunrise that doesn't come to us low on the horizon. But the text sell, tells us that this sunrise comes from on high. This sunrise comes to us from heaven directly. This sunrise will visit us. It's not like other sunrises. God the Father sent His only Son to bring us this light, a light we're so desperately in need of. To give light, verse 79 says, to those who who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. I mean, I read that and I, the words themselves paint this picture of, of despair and hopelessness. This isn't, and sometimes you get this picture of people who are groping around in the darkness. This person is so desperate, so lost. They've so given up on life that they've just chosen to go sit in the corner in the darkness and, and just... I have nowhere to go. The dark is so dark that there's no sense even groping around. There's no place to go. It's so hopeless in this situation. Sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death, death casting its shadow over those who sit in this darkness. Death enveloping them. But when Christ appears as the sunrise, he gains the victory for us. At the tomb of Jesus Christ, he shines a light that is so bright that darkness flees in the face of it. The penalty of death in that moment, the penalty of our sin is eternal. Second death, complete and utter forever separation from our God. And Jesus Christ reverses all of that and gives light and life where there was only darkness and death before. Praise God, amen? Amen. That He does that for us. He's the sunrise. 
Malachi 4.2 says that he's the son of righteousness. We sing it in Hark the Herald Angels. You ever wonder sometimes you look at son of righteousness, S-U-N of righteousness, and you go, I think they spelled that wrong on the slide. Isn't he the son, S-O-N, of righteousness? And no, it's a metaphor. He's the son of righteousness. He's the sunrise. He's the one who's come to give us light in our lives. And many in this room, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experienced this life. You have it in your lives. You're enjoying his presence. You were in darkness. The shadow of death was cast over your life. But you live in the light. You're experiencing the warmth. You know the way of peace. Notice what it says in the latter part of verse 79. He gives us this light so that we guide our feet into the way of peace. And not not that peace is the destination, that someday I'm going to make it through and get to this place of peace, but it is literally a way of peace that the rest of my life, on my journey with God, my journey through the years I have left on this earth, that that journey itself is a journey of peace. We're not just holding out for something that's eventual. We're experiencing something that's immediate. The peace comes because no longer is our enemy prevailing over us. In essence, the war is over. Jesus Christ won the day and we receive the benefits. There's no longer any division between us and our God. There's peace. We have it. It's ours. Through the work of Jesus Christ. Well, verse 80 says simply this. The child, John the Baptist, grew, he became strong. This is like a look forward to what John will be. That he grew, he became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance, the starting of his public ministry. He came to preach the same message that I'm preaching to you today, a message of repentance. You're in your sins. You need to turn away from them. You need to turn back to the Lord. You need to embrace the kingdom of God. That message of John's is the same message we preach today. It's still hitting the mark. It's still bringing results. God has visited us and brought us this message of deliverance from our slavery, from our sin, from our enemy. He's come to bring us light. And the question I simply have for you in this moment. Many believers already in this room, many have already experienced this. I thank God for that. Would you believers pray in this moment that this gospel message, this good news of Jesus Christ would hit the mark in the lives of those in this room who do not yet know him. That there would be some in this very moment who by the power of God's Holy Spirit convicting them, convincing them of this truth right now would be making the decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. All of this is given to us. Jesus Christ has come for us that we, that you, should be saved. Let's bow our heads. And I feel like a message like this, I need to ask you to respond if that's you. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you want to become a follower of Jesus Christ, confessing your sins and embracing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. You've not done that before. Maybe you've been in church all your life and you've still not done that. 
I'm just going to ask you to stand where you are and remain standing. And I'm going to pray for you. If that's you, you're going to become a follower of Jesus Christ right now. Just stand. Seeing that none have responded this morning, we'll simply pray this this prayer. God, that you would use the seeds that have been planted in the hearts of those who have heard. And God, you know everyone in the room. You know those who are yours and those who are not. So God, I would pray that seeds that have been planted would bear fruit. Father, you've said in your word that some have the privilege of reaping Others, the responsibility of planting, watering. So God, whatever a role we've played here today in the preaching of this word, God, bring it to fruition in your time. And God, I pray that all of us would be bold in our witness for you, those of us who are followers of Christ, that we would be emboldened even this week to invite others to come and see, to share our own story to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who need to hear. God, it's the greatest story ever. It's the only way whereby we can be lifted out of the darkness and into light. The only way that we can be free and find fulfillment in you. And so God, embolden us to preach the word of God. And I would pray too for those who will hear this message in audio and in video. God, we have no idea how far the message will go. We thank you for the means by which this message can spread around the world. We're grateful, God, for that. So please, Lord, just use the message in whatever way you see fit. And we'll give you the glory for all that you're going to do and continue to do and have done in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We pray that today's message was encouraging and challenging. For more info about Harvest Bible Chapel, check us out online at harvestberry.ca. Thanks again, and remember, you are loved.